Okay. All right. So are we ready? Okay. <clears throat> so does anybody remember what we talked about last week? Good stuff. No. We hit we hit COVID a little bit, but the whole point was good and evil, right and wrong. Did Yahweh put that into the mind of man to allow him to choose? Say what? Was there a question from the audience? Free will, yes, indeed, free will. So, uh, oh, we talked about that? That's good stuff there. Okay, so uh, if you recall from last week, it was my contention that good and bad, right and wrong, have more to do with obedience and disobedience to the word of God than um, just being right and wrong. So the um, scripture seems pretty clear that obedience is good and right and disobedience is bad and wrong. Um, people, it, the, the Bible tends to describe evil as being disobedient. Um, and we've, for the last, I don't know how many weeks, maybe months even, probably months, definitely months, have been talking about some of the uh, the laws, people would say the instruction, some of the Torah, <coughs> which law is kind of an incorrect term. Uh, and I am hopefully have been making the case that obedience is less about blindly following what we think the words say and more about uh, finding the heart of God in the things that we do. And the example, one of the examples was the uh, Good Samaritan, who was, you know, the three people came upon the guy who had been beaten, stripped, and uh, was in peril. And the first was the Levite, and he went to the other side of the road and passed by and did nothing. And then there was the priest who passed by and did nothing. And then there was the Good Samaritan who came by and helped him. And the reason that the priest and the Levite could not help him was not probably. We don't know the guys personally, but probably because they were not, uh, you know, terrible people or uncaring people, but they had a job to do and man's law had taught them, I mean, a misinterpretation of God's law had taught them that if they had touched this guy and uh, gotten bloody from him, then they would be unclean and they wouldn't be able to fulfill their functions as a priest or a Levite until they had spent seven days and, and become ceremonially clean. And that was an example that I was using as how man's interpretation of what God's law is, uh, it doesn't work because that was never God's intent that we would do that. It's just a, it's, it, it, it's a concept. It's a picture. It's an idea of the way we should live our life. And we've let these things, um, you know, how man interprets the rules of God, we've let the interpretations become more important than the actual intent. And that's how we get stuck, I think, in a lot of the places we're stuck. We're, you know, we're arguing over the minutia of this word says that, and we can't do this because that, and that guy did that, and all that stuff. <clears throat> But it's interesting that throughout Scripture, you see examples of people, important people, who do something that on the surface looks like they're violating one of God's instructions, and yet the Lord lauds them for it. And what first came to my mind um, was Pincus. And if you remember Pincus, one of your favorites, um, that was at a time when things were going poorly for the uh, 
nation of Israel and they had intermarried and interacted with people who uh, were not like-minded to the extent where the temple was uh, receiving guests that should never receive. And there was a, uh, a woman who was not an Israeli having sex with an Israeli guy right on the porch of the tabernacle. And it was just too much for Pincus. And he took a spear and thrust them through to eliminate the problem. And that was murder. There was no question about it. He killed those two people. And yet the Lord came down and said that was exactly what needed to happen to stay the plague from Israel. So again, um, doing things exactly to the letter as we understand it is never the intent of Scripture. You think about uh, Yeshua, who was constantly in trouble with the Pharisees because he would heal on the Sabbath or he would do things that they thought violated the law, violated his law. So if it was a violation, he wouldn't have done it. Uh, you think of David, and he ate the showbread, and he did a number of things like that that were technically violations of the law, but it wasn't, the Lord would would laud people to do that because it was, they were doing the right thing, not necessarily by interpreting um, the words exactly the way they should should be with no flexibility. And then we looked at some of the other rules that kind of work the other way. You know, you know what the rule says, for instance, um, you can stone your child for bad behavior. But of course, none of no, no one ever did that as far as we know, it was never recorded that that could be done. And in fact, if you read on further, there were additions to that where you had to have the entire city or the fathers at the gate approve and all and it never happened but the point of it was is disobedience brings death and so we take these words and we interpret them incorrectly we we put too much emphasis on the exact words and not enough emphasis on the heart passover is coming on wednesday uh, and one of the rules of Passover is you have to eat all of the lamb. You can't leave any till morning. And people will think, well, you know, that's dumb. We could put it in a Ziploc and it'd be fine. But that's not the point. That's never the point. The point of that rule is not that you can't eat uh, or you have to eat all of the lamb that night. It's that you have to accept all of, of Yeshua. You have to except all that he says, not just the, the, the ones that you like, the things that you're comfortable with. You can't treat him like a smorgasbord, but that's exactly what we do. So how do we know? You know, who is it that interprets the words or, or that, and that this goes back to the question of good and bad and wrong and right. And often, how do we know it was good or bad? Because it's not apparently obvious. And we used the example last week, I think, of, of killing someone. That should be simple, but it's not. It's become a, a huge gray area. If it's in war, is it okay? If it's euthanasia, is it okay? If it's uh, a murderer, is it okay? And all of those times, someone comes into your house with a gun to do you harm and you kill them? Is that okay? And some will say yes, some will say no. It's, it's still a gray area. So the, 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 the instructions that aren't even as 
obvious or as clear as that are certainly muddier than. Um, so we have to make we have to be able to make sense of it. So as as you know, um, I'm always encouraging us all to. We have to understand. We we have to know. If you haven't read, and haven't if you don't have a basic understanding of the rules and the instructions and the statutes and the judgments of the Lord from the Tanakh, then you stand zero chance of being able to discern uh, right and wrong, good and evil, uh, what, what they mean by, you know, what the words mean as you're trying to interpret something. So I, you know, how do you know, how do you know how to interpret something? And we're, we're good about uh, saying, oh, that guy, he, you know, he should have been here for that sermon. He could use that. Well, that's never the deal. The sermon is always to you. The message is to you. How would you deal with it? What does it mean to you? Don't worry about the other guy. Because if we're focused on, well, Billy Bob should have heard this because, you know, he does that. Then you've completely missed the point. So if you have to... It, 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 it's the question is how do you know you read the words and how do you know what the heart of the Lord is? And part of that is just familiarity. You know, the longer you have been with the Lord and uh, listened to his word and, and read and studied in the Tanakh and seen how the disciples lived it out, you come to a, you're familiar with the Lord. You become more familiar with his character and, what he would do and what he would do is what he's expecting you to do. So that makes it a little easier, but it's kind of one of those things um, like what Rockefeller or DuPont or something said, you know, if you have to ask how much it costs, you can't afford it. It's, it's sort of like that. You, I can't tell you exactly how to interpret every word, but you just know. So the only way you're going to know is to have more than a, passing familiarity with God's Torah. You, ha you have to know, at the very least, you have to be pretty familiar with the first five books. And you will read all of his statutes and judgments and commandments, all his Torah, the law, if you want to say it that way. And if you read them like you do the rest of your Bible every year, if you were to go through the first five books every year, you would start to remember all these things. And then as you read past the first five books and you start getting a lot more of these commandments and instructions, some of them that don't make sense because uh, things are culturally different now. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we'll read these things and think, well, that's not right. But I can assure you they're all right. Just because you don't think it's right or you don't understand the picture or you're concentrating too much on what the words mean in English, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means you don't understand it. So the, the way you fix that is you learn more about it. And uh, the Lord himself, uh, Yeshua, in the book of Matthew, and he was asked by his disciples because he would, he would, these crowds would follow him. And he would speak to them differently than he spoke to the disciples. He would speak to them in parables and word pictures. And they ask him, why do you do that? Why don't you just tell them what's what? Then in chapter 13, starting in verse 11, he answered, and he said unto them, because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For so whoever hath 
to him shall be given and he shall have more abundance. But to whoever have not, from him it shall be taken away, even that what he has. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, by hearing you shall hear, and you shall not understand, and by seeing you shall see, and you shall not perceive. And that's generally... Uh, it's a, it's a, I would suggest anyway, it's a picture of the disciples already knew the Tanakh. They, they had read it since they were children. They knew all the words in it. They knew the character of God. They had the keys to the kingdom to unlock these mysteries. They knew. Now, we've certainly followed enough of the disciples through the Second Testament to determine that they were... Uh, they made their share of mistakes. They might have known the words and the accounts and the, you know, the events that happened, but they had yet to be able to process them into a complete way of life. And that's what, what Yeshua came. He came to, uh, to show us the way to prove those things. This is how you will live with that information. But they already knew. They knew the words and they knew the accounts. And to those who didn't, he spoke to them differently. He spoke to them in word pictures. He drew pictures of events they'd be familiar with and gave them a tale and a moral. And, and from that, they, would, they should have been able to figure out the heart of the Lord. So as Christians, you know, 21st century American Christians, we tend to toss around the word discernment quite a bit. You know, if we have discernment or they didn't have discernment or whatever, as though if you have discernment, you would be able to interpret the words correctly and you'd be able to follow the heart of the Lord. And I've been, um, I guess, a Christian, if you want to call it that, for long enough and been involved in enough churches to know that... Um, discernment is kind of a sort of has a tenuous relationship with the word of the Lord. What is discerningly true to one person or group or denomination is not discerningly true to the other, but they all think they have discernment. So how do we know? Go back to the question, how do you know what is true and what he really means? So uh, in Hebrews chapter five, you're familiar with this, starting in verse 12, it says, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And the, again, we talked a couple of weeks ago about returning to the old past, the ancient ways. That's another one of those terms is the oracles of God are these old paths in ancient ways. So uh, Paul is saying, you, you, you've been a Christian, you've been in this church for 30 years, but you really need somebody to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God that are become such as you have need of milk, not strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to those that are of full age, even of those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
Well, most of us, I would suggest, uh, even though we may have read the Bible or per- probably more likely read the New Testament a number of times and go to church every Sunday, we're still not awesome at discerning the truth. We think we are, but often we're not. So what's this idea of discernment? You know, again, I would ask you, how do you know what it means? So Proverbs 4, 7 says wisdom is the principal thing therefore get wisdom and with all thy getting get understanding proverbs 11 i'm sorry 8 11 for wisdom is better than rubies and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it proverbs 16 16 how much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver In Proverbs 19.8, He that getting wisdom loveth his own soul, he that keepeth understanding shall find good. So we're starting to get to this answer of uh, good and bad, right? Right and wrong. It seems to be wisdom. So wisdom and understanding are better than riches or education or pedigree or intellect or beauty or anything you can think of. You know, typically, if you ask people what's important, uh, there's quite a list. It could be family, it could be the job, it could be uh, resources, it could be health, it could, you know, there's quite a list before you get down to the wisdom of God. And often the wisdom of God is not even on that list. Job 28, 28. And unto man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. And we sing that all the time. Proverbs 9.10, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of holy is understanding. So he's drawing a picture. Remember, we're talking about good and evil, right and wrong obedience and disobedience and the he's he's talking about this wisdom and this understanding and it's interesting in hebrew when you look at uh, the word for fear in hebrew is yura and it's spelled like that and it means it means not fear like we think of fear like uh freddy krueger and the slasher movies it means fear is in reverence um you know, it's not an afraid sort of thing. It's it's an awe, reverence. And it's from the, the root word is yar, means to throw. And you might recognize that, which is the root also of yarah, which is the word to throw a finger in the direction that you should walk, which is the root of Torah. So even linguistically, this idea of uh, fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This fear of the Lord is linguistically connected to the word Torah, the the instructions and judgments and statutes of the Lord, what we call the law, is a picture of wisdom. <clears throat> so we would learn once again, and we've looked at this a number of different ways in a number of different um, directions, but you will always find this 
path to wisdom or this path to righteousness or this path to the character of the Lord or this path to good or right is always through the Torah. And that's what Jesus said when he came. You know, he came not to destroy it. He came to live it, right? He came to fulfill it, to be that guy, to show us what it looked like as we applied these ideas and concepts to our lives and lived that way. So in today's vernacular, you might say that wisdom is uh, to believe God is who he claims to be and to have faith and trust that he is and can do that and be that guy, to stand before him in awe and reverence, aware of our own limits and um, the impediments we put in front of ourselves, which would include a poor interpretation of the English translation or of the Hebrew. The ideas sometimes just, they don't, they don't come through the English. And in English, we have an English word for every stinking little thing. You know, the, you've seen the unabridged Webster's Dictionary is almost as tall as I am because we have so many words. And in English, we're so used to having a specific word for a specific thing, and it's not that way in Hebrew. There's a general, it's a picture, remember? Each letter is a picture, and it draws a picture. And I've often said the 304,853 letters in the Tanakh, if you were to flip them, it's like a, a motion picture, right? You'd see, and that's not the way English is, but we're, we speak English, and we've been raised in that environment, and we see these words translated or transliterated sometimes in our English Bible, and we tend to apply to those words what we apply to every English word. You know, it has a specific meaning, and this is all it means, and that's simply not true. And we get off track because we, and we're looking at the specifics of the English letters and not the picture of the Hebrew word that is a little more general. So we tend to, like the Pharisees, uh, Think of it as it has to be exactly this way. And then when Yeshua comes and heals somebody on the Sabbath, that's, that's wrong. And there has, to be, there has to be a judgment. Or David eats of the showbread. Or, or you know, the, the, the disciples are walking through the, the fields and they're hungry. And it's a Sabbath and they take of the grain and eat. I mean, there's a pincus with his spear. There's a million of these in Scripture. That, and that's what the Pharisees were always all about. They hated Yeshua because he wouldn't conform to the way they thought the letters should be. He was conforming to the heart of the Father. So that's, I mean, it's, it's no different with us. We, you know, we fill in the spot of the Pharisees, I suppose, more often than the spot of the Lord, because of the way we were raised in English. That's just the way English is, but that's not the way the Bible's written. So on the other hand of this, if wisdom and understanding are what bring us to good and true and, and all of that, to see the character of the Lord, the other hand is Psalm uh, 14.1. It says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, and they have done abominable works, and there is none that do good. Or Proverbs 26.11, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 10.8, 
The wise in heart will receive commandments, but a chattering fool comes to ruin. And of course, we can do that all day long. There is much spoken in the scriptures about fool. And I should have looked that word up for you because it has it's, it has a pretty good meaning. And as I recall from years ago, I think it means moron. But uh, well, remember we had this discussion and I looked it up and she told me to stop using that word. And it's a biblical word. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Fools are equated with disobedience, with wrong, with bad, with evil. If you're not a fool, you're... You have wisdom, you know, an understanding. And that's equated with, with good and right and the character of the Lord. That's obedience. But the scriptures, you know, go further because they always do. They always tell you things. And then they explain it 57 different directions for every person who's ever been for all time from any culture and any age. And then they typically give you pictures. So scripture is no different in this case. He gives you pictures of wise people. And he says, these are wise people. Hint, hint. Those are people we should follow. We should learn from these people. And you'll notice as we go through the list of a few that these people were not perfect. Wisdom and understanding and good and right and all of that does not make you perfect. You will still have lapses and make errors and choose stupid stuff, but it's a picture of your heart. Is your heart for the Lord or is your heart like the dog returning to his vomit for the things of the world? So obviously the most famous person who received wisdom is Solomon uh, in Second Chronicles 1.11. It said, and God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, that you have not asked riches or wealth or honor, nor the life of your enemies, neither have you asked for a long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. And it goes on to say, and I have added to you riches and and." whatever, you know, whatever he asked for here, um, because that's how it works. If we have wisdom and understanding that will put us in a spot where we tend to do better, our enemies can't touch us because we have the wisdom of God and they don't. Through that relationship often comes uh, wealth or riches or notoriety or, you know, I mean, the, the things none of us have, but it's, it puts us in a comfortable spot. When we have the wisdom and, wisdom and the understanding of the Lord, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter if there's a coronavirus or if China's going to take over or if the government has rescinded all your rights or the government's destroying 50 million people. None of that matters because you have the upper hand. You have the wisdom of God. And it's easy to get wrapped up in all of these things. And indeed, Solomon did. Towards the end of his life, he finished poorly. He started well, and he had wisdom. And I think that's one of the reasons that Solomon is, 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 a, is a great example. 
because he had this wisdom, he had this understanding, and he was still overtaken by the things of the world towards the end. And that doesn't mean he suddenly didn't know the character of the Lord. It might have meant that he was making some bad decisions and being disobedient now and again, but I don't think it necessarily uh, changed his relationship with the Lord or his understanding of the character of the Lord, but it's a warning. You know, wisdom is not static. We can get it today and lose it tomorrow. We, we, we need to gain it. We need to try to gain it. We need to seek it and to find it any way we can, but it's not, oh, great, I've got it. I'm done. We, we need to continue. And the Lord is gracious enough to provide us avenues every single day that will challenge our wisdom and understanding of things. And I, I think in Philippians, it's, it says something about uh, it is our honor to be included in basically the problems of life, right? The Lord is, it's not easy. It's not going to be easy, but it's to our honor to be able to be there because the Lord has us there for a purpose. And if our purpose is to be a light to the, to the neighborhood and to the city and to the state and to the country and to the world, amen and hallelujah. It doesn't matter how it all falls out. It doesn't matter if we wind up losing everything. All that matters is, do you have that wisdom? Were you, were you able to do, were you willing to do the things that he asked you to do? Because it's not up to us to rewrite the government structure of, the city, state, world, country, whatever, it's up to us to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, that displays the character of the Lord to the people that he has around us. But it is not a static thing. Okay, Exodus 35, verses 25 and 26, an example of more wise people. It says, and all the wisdom, or I'm sorry, all the women that were wise wise-hearted, did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun, both of blue and silver and of scarlet and of fine linen. And the women whose hearts stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair. That's pretty non-specific, but it's an idea. It's a concept. Are you willing to be useful? Are you going to be a woman who sits around all days and does her nails and, you know, has Maria take care of everything for her and just nags and complains about everything? Or are you going to be the woman who gets out there and does stuff? If you're going to do stuff, you I suggest you would do it because the Lord has moved your heart to do it. And it's no longer a chore. You know, the, the ladies here are doing things for various groups. Why is that? Because I'm guessing because the Lord has moved their hearts to do that. And they're, they heard it and they're willing to say, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. And the environment changes and the economy changes and the rules change and you have to change with it. That's wisdom and understanding. But that's an example in scripture of what it looks like to be a wise person. You know, someone that gets off there and does the stuff. Um, a little later in the chapter, 30 and 33, or I guess earlier in chapter, Moses is describing other wise people. Uh, people you've never heard of. And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Beziel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur from the tribe of Judah. 
And he hath filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship and to devise curious works, to work in gold and silver and in brass and in the cutting of stones to set them and the carving of wood to make any manner of cunning work. Okay, so if the Lord had decided this guy was going to work for me, he was going to make all the implements and emblems and everything in the tabernacle, and I was going to show him how to do this, give him the skills and the wisdom and the ability to do this. And he said, I don't want to do it. They wouldn't have gotten done. So this idea of wisdom and understanding, it's still, we have a part to play. He can give us this stuff and we can reject it or we can use it. And like the women who were spinning yarn and uh, these guys or this guy who was had quite a plate full of stuff, he went ahead and used those gifts. And we know later he made some, well, the candlestick and the temple and, you know, these implements of gold and silver, the 50 clasp and all the things that went into that because the Lord gave him the wisdom to do it. And you think about how, you know, how do you make brass? Well, you go to the brass store. Well, brass, as I understand it, is is not, you don't just dig up brass. You dig up a rock that's sort of, like the color of our acapoly chairs and you break it all up and you separate it out and you get this material and then you melt it when it comes copper, but copper is not very strong. So then you have to get this other material that's found in another rock and you break it up and you separate that rock with this color material and that color. And you take that and you put in with this and you melt it all. A bit. Okay. That doesn't happen by accident. The Lord has to explain that to someone. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go to that hill and you see those rocks. I want you to dig those up and break them and take the red parts and then go over here and dig a hole. When you find rocks that are that color, break them up and get this. And then you put it in a big bowl and you get it up to, you know, 3,500 degrees and you melt it. And then we can do stuff. Well, I mean, it doesn't even make sense that you'd figure that out on your own. And yet mankind has known it for thousands of years because the Lord put it in someone's mind. This is what you need to do. And he could have said, oh, that's stupid. I don't think so. That doesn't even make sense. Rocks, come on. But that's how all metal is made. Then he mentions another guy who had wisdom, Aholiab, in verses 34 and 35 of the same chapter. And he put in his heart, as he may teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ashamach of the tribe of Dan, them that he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work of the engraver and of the cunning workman and of the embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and of the weaver and even of them that do work and those that devise cunning work. And it's the same thing. You need to have specific colored materials for use in the tabernacle. Well, if you need purple where are you going to get a purple sheep? You're not. Well, I mean, unless you're in San Francisco, you're not going to find a purple sheep. So someone had to be told that, okay, this is how you're going to get a purple sheep. You take a sheep and you do all the things you know to do 
you shear it, you weave it, you get the thread, and then you don your, your scuba gear and you go down and you find these specific muscles and you bring them up and you crush them and you get this purple goo and you run the, th the thread through it to get purple. And that's what I want in the temple. Well, that doesn't happen by accident. Not only not by accident, if again, if you're reading the exact letter of the Torah, this is why Jews don't go on the water. You know, a fisherman in Israel is worse than a garbage man. The Jews do not go on the water because they believe all of the bad things of the universe get dumped into the ocean, which now is true. It wasn't true back then. And so they wouldn't go in the water. So for some, and that's, again, if we go to Jonah, that's one of the biggest lessons is easily missed in Jonah is he jumped into the, no Jew would do that. No Jew would take a boat if he didn't have to, because the, 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 the sea was the symbol of all bad things. Okay. So the Lord is telling me, and I'm going to go build the temple for him. What I need to do is to not only jump in the sea, which is bad, and find these shellfish, which are unclean, and bust them open and squeeze them up and get this purple stuff that I'm going to dye the perfectly lovely white sheep with to get the color that he wants in the tat. That doesn't even make sense because they knew the Tanakh. They knew that they could not do that. The sea was unclean. The muscles were unclean. The act of Busting them open and squeezing them up to get the purple was unclean. To make the tabernacle? That's, that's not right. And yet, that's what he said you have to do. And there's obviously a lesson in that. You get to the New Jerusalem, the gate, there's 12 gates to the 12 gates. To the, okay, we've got that somewhere. Um, Daryl Mansfield, we used to have him do my camps. He's awesome. Um, the gates are made of what? Pearl. Wow, that'll be awesome. Except a pearl is unclean. Why would you have an unclean thing? An oyster is unclean. How do you get a pearl? You take an unclean oyster who opens its mouth, sucks in a, a, a piece of sand, closes it. Now he has this thing irritating his gullet. And so he produces this stuff to cover the sand. And pretty soon you have a pearl but it's still unclean and it's in the ocean. And yet the gates to the new Jerusalem are made of pearl. Okay, when we get to the red heifer, this will all make sense. Okay, let's talk about more people who have wisdom. Uh, that was a little off the beat. I know you're shocked. Genesis 41, 39. And the Pharaoh said unto Joseph, for as much as God has showed you all this, there is none so discreet and wise as you. Now, Joseph is a picture of a wise guy who did everything the Lord asked. And you look at his life and you can easily say, oh my gosh, I wouldn't want that. And if I had to go through 60 years of that, I doubt if I'd be on the Lord's side still at the end, but he was. And he's an example of a guy that we are unlikely to be. Joseph and Daniel are the only two guys in scripture that I know of that no bad is said of them. They did everything exactly the way it should have been done. So he has to give us Solomon first, who's, who's wise, 
a wise guy, but he was imperfect. He was like we are. He had all the abilities and uh, wisdom and understanding, and, and yet he was imperfect in handling it. Joseph, on the other hand, was perfect in handling it. There's another guy who displays wisdom in Scripture. He was 12 years old, and in Israel, well, I mean, anywhere, if you're Jewish, to this day, and the Catholics have usurped this, um, you know what a bar mitzvah is, yes? And now they have bat mitzvahs for women, little girls. Uh, the bar mitzvah was when the child came of age, when he became a man. And by that, they don't mean, well, all they basically mean is he could go to work now. And so when, when a child became old enough and competent enough and physically able enough to go to work, what he would do is he would apprentice at his father's trade. So it roughly 12 years old, and today I think it's 13 in most Jewish cultures, uh, and I think it's the same 12 or 13 in Catholics, and they have, uh, what is it, not communion, they have confirmation, and it's the same thing. It's, uh, they, they, anyway, the idea is, at that age, this young man begins to apprentice the work of his father. So Luke 2.40 says this, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. You know who that is, right? It's Yeshua. They came to the, they, the, the whole family, the whole community came to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. And they celebrated the feasts, packed up their stuff. And apparently during the feast, and of course we know this is true, during the Feast of Tabernacles, Yeshua would have turned 12. So it was, he, he would have had his bar mitzvah. He would have at that point started apprenticing to, to the trade of his father, which is quite interesting. And as the child, so this, this is that story in Luke chapter two, where they got, you know, some distance away from Jerusalem and realized, well, the lad's missing. And they ran back to Jerusalem only to find him sitting with the elders in the tabernacle, learning and teaching them. And the elders were shocked at the wisdom. And that's, that's where we get this. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So those are some of the people in script. There, there are quite a few, but there are some of the people in scripture that I identified as having wisdom. And we look at that group of people and we can easily determine that all of them were obedient. All of them were good. All of them made the right choices most of the time. And those are the ideas. How do you get to be, you know, how do you find out what's good and what's bad? How do you know what's right and wrong? Because it's not always obvious. The way is you become obedient. Well, obedient to what? How do you know? How do you know what the words mean, what they really mean? And the way you know is with wisdom. Well, how do you get wisdom? 
Deuteronomy 4, 6. Therefore, or keep therefore, and do them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So it says, keep therefore and do them. It's talking about the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, and the instructions. This shows you have wisdom. But again, how do you really know what to do? Yahweh, Job, Ezra, and a bunch of others are found in scripture to have wisdom. But almost more importantly, Edom and all his crew, Esau and uh, Cain and Nimrod and all these guys, they were found not to have wisdom. So the, the picture is always drawn. If you have wisdom, by default, you can be obedient. By default, those things are good and right. If you don't have wisdom, by default, you're evil. And the things that you do are going to tend to be bad and wrong. So obedience is wisdom. Disobedience is folly. Esau, Ishmael, Cain, Nimrod, uh, the Nakash in the garden. These guys don't have wisdom. You don't want to be like that. You want to have wisdom. And how is it that they didn't have wisdom? I mean, clearly it was a choice that they all made, but why would you make that choice? Proverbs 11.2, when pride cometh, then, sh then cometh shame but with lowly is wisdom. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glory glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth, for these things I delight, saith the Lord. Ezekiel 28, 17, and see if you can figure out who this is. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness, and I will cast thee to the ground, and I will lay thee before kings that they may behold you. Obviously, that's the enemy. Okay, so wisdom is good. Man's wisdom is bad. Got that. Um, but how do we get a handle on what Yahweh's words mean? I mean, they're not always obvious, especially in English. So is there anything else we can do? First Chronicles 22, 11. Now, my son, the Lord be with thee and prosper you and build the house of the Lord thy God, as he hath said of thee. Only the Lord gives thee wisdom and understanding and give thee charge concerning Israel that thou may keep the law of the Lord thy God. The Lord gives wisdom and understanding. It's not something we can do. Proverbs 2.6, the Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Daniel 2.23, 23, I thank thee and praise thee, O Lord, God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might and has made me known unto me what, what is desired of me? For you have made known unto us this king's matter. This was when Daniel, of course, interpreted the dream. And Daniel will tell you that he didn't interpret it. The Lord did. Matthew, oh no. Matthew 7. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Somebody's going to have to read that one until I find out where I am here. <laughs> it all went south. So 
What does that say? Matthew 7 something. Nicely done. James 4.2, you lust and you have not, you kill, you desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, you have not because you ask not. So most of us, the crowd in this room and the people in the, in the Colosseum listening online, um, we, we read the Bible. We make every effort we can to understand it. We try to understand his character and we try to apply it to our lives. We pray all the time. We ask for his help when we need it. We pray for other people when they need it. We do all the things that we think we should do. You know, a few weeks ago, we were looking at changing the dynamic. We talked about uh, the guy who was sued for his coat, giving him the underwear too. The guy who was taking the pack a mile, take it too. The guy who was slapped, you know, backhanded on the right cheek, turn it to the other. And it was a way of changing the dynamic within the words of the Lord. It was a picture of, of getting past the letters on the page and seeing the heart and intent and character of the Lord. Those are the things that we need to know. We need to know how to, how to deal with the day-to-day -day stuff. And so we all pray and we all, you know, seek God and we all learn and we all read and we all go to church. And it says in Proverbs 3, 13, happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding. And Psalm 90, 12 says, so to teach us our number of days that we may apply our hearts onto wisdom. We get wisdom by seeking the Lord, by asking him for it. So I've heard for 20 years doing Bible studies and 20, 30 years, churches and praying with thousands of people camps and you know i've heard every prayer that's ever been prayed i think and i don't ever recall anybody praying for wisdom or asking for wisdom but the bible says wisdom is the key to discerning right and wrong to discerning the difference between the words on the page like the pharisees read them and like so many of us read them and the picture that the lord is drawing it's that difference between good and bad and obedient and disobedient and right and wrong. We need wisdom and understanding. And I just read you a few of the many verses that say we need, we can only get wisdom and understanding from the Lord. Shouldn't we include asking for wisdom in our prayer life as a daily thing for the Lord. We've learned it's not static. You can have wisdom one day and then maybe not the next day. Solomon uh, didn't apply his wisdom as well as he should towards the end. And I just think that in our, in our conversation about the instructions about the Torah, the laws, if you want to call it that, the instructions and statutes and judgment of the Lord laws and what they really mean, and our uh, 
comments and instructions about good and bad and wrong and right. And did the Lord put those both in our hearts so that we could make a choice? And I suggest it's about obedience and disobedience, but to what? How do we even know what's right and wrong sometimes? It's not as obvious as one might think. And then we read the commandments of the Lord, and sometimes it gets more confusing for us because we're reading them in a culture that's so disconnected from that culture and a language that's so disconnected from Hebrew, we tend not to get the picture he's intending us to get. We tend not to learn the full lesson that he's intending us to get. And the Bible will tell you that the job, the the only job of the priest is to provide discernment to the people so that they can determine for themselves right and wrong, good and evil, clean and unclean, so that they can gain the wisdom of the Lord. And it it's not just today. It's been going on as long as there have been priests for the people. They have not adequately done that job in my opinion and the bible says it, it well, let me tell you what it does not say it does not say the priests need to seek wisdom to give to the people we need to seek wisdom from the lord because he will dispense it to each of us and each of our lives is different we we run with different people we live in different places we have uh, new babies and we have older children and we have jobs and we have no jobs and we have illness and we have health and we have wealth and we have poverty. Every one of us is different. So the wisdom needs to be different. We need to understand the things that pertain to our little sphere that the Lord has given us, to the people that run in our circles. And the only way that's going to happen is with a good, firm foundation of what the Lord said, and then by asking his wisdom to help us discern what is right and wrong and what needs to be said or not said among our crowd of people. And... Um, I would like for each of us to seriously consider uh, doing that, putting that on our prayer list of things that we would entreat the Lord for, to see if he will give us this wisdom, and he will, because he flat says he will, and then to be able to use it correctly, like the guys who, you want me to take a bunch of rocks from that mountain? and a bunch of rocks from that valley and break them up and mix them 60, 30 and melt them to get what? Or you want me to jump in the ocean, find a bunch of these unclean things, pry them off the floor, bring them up, smash them with a rock, get the gut, squeeze it to get some purple juice. None of this makes sense. And yet that is the wisdom of the Lord. His law says that is unclean. Don't touch that. Well, that's not necessarily what he meant, certainly not in the circumstances of those people at that time. So when we read the words on the page and try to interpret them with the language we speak and the culture we live in, we don't always get the right picture. We need his wisdom to help us discern whether we can or, or, or cannot or should or should not do whatever it is he's asking us to do or whatever it is we feel he's asking us to do. Because often the things that we feel he's asking us to do, like the priest and the Levite, there may be a perfectly good biblical reason why we shouldn't do that. 
but that may not matter to the Lord because he's after the heart of the thing, the character of God, not the words on the page. So that's what we have tonight. So there you go.